We're going to focus our intention on God's word, and just as we do so, let's just ask for his help to do so. Heavenly Father, we just pray as we come to the word of God, uh, the inspired, inerrant word of God that you've given to us, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, we pray through our reflection and our meditation upon scripture this morning that you would make us more like Christ. Please conform us to the image of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our goal. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Proverbs 13, 15 states, Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. I like how the old King James Version rendered the last half of this verse. They rendered it this way, the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. There is an axiomatic principle about life bound up in these words. There's really two ways to live this life. There's God's way and there are man's ways. Or man's way. The way of obedience to God and the way that's trodden by sinful men. And although we readily acknowledge that God is sovereign all of, over all of life's events, and that occasionally, and perhaps we'd even say regularly, bad things happen to good people, we know that to be true. But in general, it's true that if one chooses to pursue sin in this life, then there will be negative, painful consequences as a result. If you reject the ways of, God's, ways of God found in his word and you pursue the path of sinners, expect difficulty in this life. Expect to pay the consequences of real hardship in this life. In other words, the way of the transgressor is hard. If you pursue drunkenness and wanton pleasure, expect legal trouble. Expect relational strife. Expect conflict in your home and with your family and in your work relations. In Solomon's words, again, the way of the transgressor is hard. If you transgress God's law, then generally you should expect very real difficulty in this life. This is the proverbial wisdom of Solomon. Solomon had likely seen this in his own life over and over again. In fact, one example that he could have learned from would have been the example of his own father, David. One of the greatest trials David ever faced was a direct consequence of David's own sin, his own pursuit of sinful pleasure. So to begin our time in God's word this morning, please open up with me to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. If you start in the beginning and work your way from Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua, Judges, Ruth, then comes 1 and 2 Samuel. Now, the book of 2 Samuel is all about the reign of King David. And in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel, it really recounts David's ascension to the throne. For example, look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, starting in, or just look at verse 7. Chapter 5, verse 7. Nevertheless, it says, David captured the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. 
Here's when David conquered Jerusalem. Look what it says in verse 9. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all, all around from the Milo and inward. David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons. And they built a house, a palace for David. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Here's David ascending to the throne. He's blessed by the Lord. And even pagan kings are blessing David. Then also in chapter 6, we see the Ark of the Covenant making its way into Jerusalem. In chapter 7, David makes plans to, to build God a temple where he could be worshipped rather than being worshipped in the tent. But God interrupts David's plans, as you know, to build a temple. And God informs David that he would not be the one to build the temple. Instead, it would be David's son who would build the temple for him. And then in, in chapter 7, we find one of the most important promises in all of the Old Testament. We call it the Davidic Covenant, 2 Samuel. And what God says to David through the prophet Nathan, look at it with me beginning in chapter 7, verse 8. Verse 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. And the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And when your days are complete and you will lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, David would have a son, David's ultimate greatest son, God promised would rule over an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. This is, of course, a reference to the Messiah. David desired to build God an earthly house, but God promises to David instead, no, I'll build you an eternal house, a line of descendants that will culminate in the Messiah. And the significance of this promise was not lost on David. We see that in verse 18. David exclaims, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? He says, God, who am I that you would give this grace to? I mean, recall, David was a nobody shepherd. He was the eighth born of, of Jesse, the youngest son of Jesse. And yet God gave David a promise that could really only be paralleled with the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. David was unquestionably blessed and chosen by God. He was Yahweh's anointed. And David continues to triumph in 2 Samuel, enjoying the blessings of God upon his life. 
However, as is often the case when we experience great blessing, in just three short chapters, David's heart would begin to stray from the Lord. And David's desire for God was subtly exchanged for a desire for pleasure, a desire for women. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's adulterous sin with Bathsheba occurs. And she becomes pregnant. And David, as you know, murderously eliminates her husband, Uriah. And although David was called a man after God's own heart, in this season of his life, this was a season of sin, and his heart became calloused towards the Lord. And God sent the prophet Nathan to rebuke David in his sin. Now look at the prophet's words to David in chapter 12, verse 9. Here, here's the rebuke from the Lord. So he says, Nathan, verse 9 of chapter 12, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite by the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I'll raise up evil against you from your own household. I'll even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie down with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. At this point, with Nathan's words coming to David, it really all sinks in. We might say conviction sets in for David. His sin, his hypocrisy, his rebellion against, against God, it all really comes unraveled in this moment, and David expresses godly sorrow. Look at what David says in response to, in verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, The Lord, has also, ta- the Lord also has taken away your sin, and you shall not die. So God in his grace removed David's sin, but the consequence of David's sin remained. Two consequences are listed in verse 14. Nathan says, However, because by this deed you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is to be born will surely die. So as a consequence of David's sins, God's own enemies would blaspheme God. And also, this baby would die. And yet there was also another consequence of David's sin. We saw it already in verse 11. It says there, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. That was the consequence of David's rebellion and the consequence of his transgression against the Lord. Again, Proverbs tells us the way of the transgressor is hard, and so would David's way now be hard. It would be difficult. Despite David's prayer for the baby, this newborn infant would soon become ill and die. And then in chapter 13, conflict begins to swell up in David's own house, really ripping through his house. David's firstborn son, Amon, defiles his half-sister, Tamar, and as a result of David's neglect to carry out justice, Tamar's brother, 
David's third-born son, Absalom, takes revenge upon Amon. And Amon puts him to death. And to avoid punishment, then Absalom fled from the kingdom of Israel, fled for three years. And David, in essence, grieves the loss of two sons, Amon and Absalom. Eventually, Absalom would return, but there was never any indication that Absalom was repentant. Personal revenge, as you know, is always condemned in Scripture. And over the course of the next two years, Absalom would really manipulate power to return into good graces with his fathers, with his father. In chapter 14, the chapter ends with Absalom prostrating himself before his father, the king, and David kisses him, a sign of forgiveness and reconciliation, welcoming him back after five years. Yet there's an interesting note about Absalom in chapter 14, verse 25, and a note about his appearance, actually. Look what it says there, chapter 14, verse 25. It says, Now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. What a thing. Verse 26, He would cut the hair of his head, and it it was at the end of every year that he cut it, and it was heavy on him, so he cut it, and the weight of his hair of his head was 200 shekels by the king's weight. I take it to mean that was just a lot of hair on this man, just flowing hair on this supermodel type man, Absalom. Amazing thing to say about him here. Apparently, he looked like his great-grandfather or his grandfather Saul, who was also a tall and handsome man. And naturally, such appearances in Absalom would attract attention. There was no one as handsome as Absalom. The text says, no one is highly praised. And since Absalom had already killed David's firstborn son, it should not surprise us to find in Absalom a desire for the throne, a desire to reign. And in chapter 15, Absalom begins to plot an overthrow on David's life. David, our God, was raising up evil against David from his own household, just as the Lord had prophesied that he would. He begins by, Absalom begins by successfully currying favor with the people. And then he hatches a conspiracy against the Lord. And according to the end of verse 12 of chapter 15, it says the conspiracy was strong. And the, and the people increased continually with Absalom. But people's hearts were turning from David to join Absalom in rebellion. Look at this with me in verse 13 of chapter 15. Verse 13 Then a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, for otherwise none none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly, and bring down calamity on us, and and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So this is what David did. He, He fled. 
He was a man running from his own son, his murderous son. Absalom had murdered before, and David knew he would certainly try to do it again to secure the kingdom for himself. And so David had no choice but to rally with his closest servants and leave Jerusalem. Verse 30 of chapter 15 gives us a sense of the emotion that would have gripped David as he left his own palace, hunted down by his own son. Look at Verse 30, and David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, leaving the city complex of Jerusalem, going up the neighboring hill slope. And as he, and, and wept as he went, the text says, and his head was covered and he walked barefoot. And then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Uh, imagine this scene. David exiting his own city, the city he conquered, where his, his palace was built, and now he's running as he climbs this eastward hill, the Mount of Olives. And here David is overcome by emotion. He's, he's weeping. There appears to be remorse over this sudden turn of events, perhaps remorse over his own sin, his own knowing that this is all coming about because of his own sin. And so now... David is on the run, and no doubt David would have been filled with fear for his own life. He was being hunted down. He was the king of Israel, and now the fate of the whole kingdom was in question, and the fate of his own life was in question. Again, many were joining and defecting to Absalom. David didn't know who to trust in this season. Former friends were defecting from him with murderous intentions against him. David here is facing what appears to be imminent death from Absalom and all those who were siding with Absalom. I mean, just for a minute, put yourself in David's shoes here. There were now many people in David's own kingdom who wanted to kill him, who, who were searching for him to, to put him, his life to an end. And I just wonder, have you ever been in a situation like that, being hunted down as for someone desiring to kill you. I, I can't say personally that I have. Um, I, I don't think I've experienced a fear quite like this. Perhaps some of you military veterans have been in a situation like this. I know that others of you have been through ab abuse scenarios in, in your life, abuse so severe that you've perhaps feared for your own life in, in a similar way, a fear like David here, the fear that is just so debilitating, just so that consumes a man. Imagine, if you can, just the emotional intensity of this moment in David's life. Imagine the fear that would have gripped your heart if you were fleeing like this, the type of fear that really crowds out any lesser thoughts in your minds, really a crippling, a crippling excruciating fear. In our day, such a degree of fear is perhaps somewhat uncommon for us. It's not an everyday fear. Perhaps this is a once-in-a-lifetime fear for us, a fear that's a, accompanied perhaps with a diagnosis or a diagnosis of a terminal illness, perhaps stage four cancer. You know, perhaps it's the fear that's produced in one when they've been given their own expiration date. You've got two months to live. This is an extreme fear. This is a, a life-dominating fear. And so David's life here was crumbling in every respect. And while we may not face such severe fears regularly, 
threats upon our life and such, really the, the tremors of this fear are all around us. We all struggle with fear in one way or another. There's really no shortage of things to be fearful about in this day and age in particular. We have many things to be fearful about. Sometimes our fears are grounded in reality, and sometimes they're not, right? You know this. Sometimes we fear things that may come to pass, and sometimes we fear things that we think may come to pass, but in reality, they'll likely never come to pass. We have fears that are substantiated and unsubstantiated fears. We have fears of both kinds often, and we often can't tell the difference. Otherwise, we wouldn't be fearful of the things that are unsubstantiated. If we only were able to know all things, we could know perhaps what we should actually fear. But we fear because we do not know. We do not know. And because we don't know what tomorrow holds, we fear. We fear a myriad of different things. And in some sense, we could say God has created us to fear. As, as you know, we're commanded to fear the Lord. Psalm 34 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. You know this, we're commanded to fear him. We, we might interpret these words as revere him, have a holy awe for God. We should revere him. We should, we should tremble in his presence. But at the end of the day, it's still the word fear. We are to fear him. We're to tremble before him, and we're called to fear him alone. But in our flesh, as you know, we're prone to fear everything but God. We fear death. We fear man. We fear what man thinks about us. We fear the loss of respect. We fear the loss of life, of course, the loss of our children's life, the loss of our spouse's life, the loss of our parents' life be it from COVID or be it from cancer, we fear all of these things. We fear the loss of comfort, we fear failure, we fear being alone, and the list really goes on and on. We fear getting sick or children getting sick. Another way we can describe these fears is just by calling them anxiety. We can really be anxious about a lot of things in this life. Cares that weigh us down, that keep us up at night, so I wonder what you in your own heart are most fearful about. Well, what's the thing in your heart that you struggle with? What's, what's your greatest fear? What do you catch yourself worrying about? As you know, Scripture calls us to be anxious for nothing. We're called to cast our cares upon the Lord in 1 Peter 5. But how do we do that when we're truly fearful? We're in a situation that rightly produces fear in our hearts, how are we to not be afraid? How are we to not be fearful? Well, in the Lord's good provision for us, in this very season of David's life, this moment of perhaps his greatest crisis, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David penned a poem. And through the flood of emotions that he was experiencing, David converted the wrestlings of his own heart into words and into a psalm. And that unique psalm is recorded in Psalm 3. Psalm 3. Please turn with me this morning. That's what we'll focus on here. The, psalm, the third psalm. In this third psalm, as the psalms frequently do, we find an example for us. Psalm 3 records a time in David's life when fear gave way to faith. Fear gave way 
to faith, when there was every reason to be crippled by fear and anxiety, but somehow David managed to trust in the Lord. And this is what this psalm can teach us. If David could come to rest in God amidst such an extreme fear, then certainly we, we should be able to learn to trust God in our much lesser fears. And please follow along with me as I read Psalm 3, but look first at the inspired subtitle. We have to remember whenever we come to the Psalms that these subtitles are inspired scripture. This is written by David himself, and it says this. The subtitle says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. This is the only psalm that is directly connected with this time of Absalom's attempted coup upon David's life to overthrow the kingdom. But now look with me at the words of this psalm. Look at verse 1. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. Commenting on this psalm, one scholar has written, In this psalm, David shares his theological secret of having assurance in the face of adversity. I want to modify that slightly to this. In this psalm, David shares his theological secret of having assurance and peace in the midst of dire circumstances. And it is this theological secret that we need to uncover here this morning and then attempt to fit into our own lives. So that's our goal this morning, to observe the pattern set by David and make it our own so that we can move from fear to hope in God through faith. That's the goal. Move from fear to hope through faith. As you know, one of the most repeated commands in the Bible is to Fear not. Be not afraid. It's over and over again in the scriptures. We're to fear God alone. But as we look to the psalm, some English Bibles present this psalm in three paragraphs. That's the way it may appear in your Bible. There's a division often after verse 2 and a division after verse 6. And that seems to fit well with the divisions that I see in this psalm. And three times, it's worth noting, uh, we see this word selah in the psalm. I read two of them, missed the middle one, but we see it in verse 2, after verse 2, after verse 4, and after verse 8. And sadly, today, there's really no agreement as, as to what this word exactly means, selah. It's, it's interesting. Generally, it's thought to indicate a pause or perhaps a, a rest in the singing of this song, or perhaps it's to call for a collective response from the congregation. Perhaps it was a call to meditate on what was just sung. When these ancient Hebrew psalms were, were sung in ancient Israel, certainly there would have been a known meaning to the word Selah. 
sadly, unfortunately, that information has been lost to us today, but it's still interesting for us to note. But as we look on the psalm as a whole, Psalm 3, some have categorized it as a psalm of lament. And at, to at least some degree, that's fitting because the opening two verses uh, begin on a note of lament. And to lament, if I were to put that in my own, what does it mean to lament? To, to lament means to express one's honest thoughts to God. Express one's honest thoughts to God in prayer. It's, it's a reverent reciting of the realities of your life and what's going on in your heart and in your situation around you, all telling it to God. We see another example of lament, for example, in Psalm 13. David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Here's just David's honest emotions taken to the Lord in prayer. How long shall I take counsel in my own soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? He's just honestly expressing his own heart to the Lord. And judging by the repeated examples of the laments or the psalms of lament in the scriptures, it's certainly an acceptable way that we can communicate with our God in the midst of difficulty and trial. We might call it a, a means of sanctified verbal processing with God. Psalm 62 verse 8 states, Trust in him at all times, O peoples. Pour out your heart before him. For God is a refuge for us. And really, as I think of to lament, that's what I think of. Pouring out your heart before the Lord. To lament is to just empty your heart and your thoughts to the Lord in prayer. And that's what we find at the beginning of Psalm 3. I'm calling this first section, this first two verses of Psalm 3, the psalmist's heart outpoured. The psalmist's heart outpoured. Look at those verses again with me. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. As David fled from Absalom, these are just the facts as they were. This is David's honest assessment of the situation. David writes, O Lord, O Yahweh, how my adversaries have increased. How my enemies have increased around me. He uses the special personal name for God here. O Lord, all caps, O Yahweh. This is God's particular personal name that he revealed to his people Israel. And in verses 1 and 2, David then repeats a form of the word many three times. It's an interesting little note that David did here. In the verb, in the first line, there's a, ver there's a form of the word many, and it's followed by the noun, which is used noun many two times. So David exclaims essentially, O Yahweh, my enemies have become many, and many are rising up against me, and many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for God in him. And so not only have David's enemies become many, and are they, they're increasing in number, if they're when we know this from the historical incident, this is just many are turning to Absalom and following Absalom's movement. And as if it were not enough that these enemies personally wanted to kill David, hated David, sought to end his life, they also seemed to be intent upon insidiously undermining his relationship with God or kind of refuting everything that David claimed to believe. They deny his claims about God. They mocked David and exclaimed that God would not take care of him. And there would be no deliverance for David, they were saying of him. 
And so the, the tide has now turned in the kingdom of Israel and more and more are joining Absalom and the glory of David's former years was quickly being pulled back like a retreating wave in the sea. And of course, this again was just the situation on the ground for David. Now, of course, God was fully aware of all that was transpiring with David. God was aware of it. And we know that David was aware that God was aware. And that nonetheless, David pours out his heart before the Lord in prayer, just as God desires that we do. In prayer, David tells God what God already knows. Isn't that interesting? He's telling God what God certainly knows. And I think this is the first step of rightly dealing with fear and rightly navigating trials and suffering in our lives. It's just an honest outpouring of our hearts in lament to the one who knows and cares. And this is the psalmist's heart outpoured in verses 1 and 2. And that quickly gives way to the psalmist's faith flexed. The psalmist's faith flexed like a flexing of a muscle. Look at verse 3 with me of Psalm 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who set themselves against me roundabout. And in these four, verse, in these four verses, David's faith comes to life. Here, David... What David knew to be true was now being called to his own mind and pressed into trust. You see, in the face of fear, David defiantly clings to his faith in God. He draws on his experience of who, who God has been to him in the past. He says, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me. Now, typically, a shield, as you know, protects from you know, one direction, but here, David likens God to a shield surrounding him in every direction, protecting him from any possible threat. And David refers to God as my glory, my glory, meaning David recognized that God was really the entire sum and substance of all of the worth and significance of David's life. He's saying, look, I would have no honor apart from you, God. My, my worth is found in you. You are my glory. And he says, and the one who lifts my head. God is the one who's able to make me stand or, or fall. He, he is my confidence. And if he so chooses, I will be strengthened. I do not have the strength to lift my own head, but he, he is able to do so if he wills. He's the one who lifts my head. And so here again, David is rehearsing what he knows to be true about God to himself. David is calling truth to mind so as to bolster his confidence in the Lord. And he does the same in verse 4. Look at it again. It says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Here in verse 4, going from the ancient Hebrew into the English, it's difficult to get the tense of these verbs right, I think. When it's rendered with the simple past tense, it suggests that David prayed and then God answered and, and did something, or God spoke something, as if God spoke directly from heaven to David in the midst of this trial. And while David is unquestionably a special figure, a special individual in the Bible, he's referred to as a prophet at times, 
But even to David, God's typically, his typical means of speaking to him is through the word of God. And I think that's how we should understand this here. I don't believe God is speaking to him audibly in, in verse 4. And furthermore, in verse 7, we see that David is still praying for deliverance. He's still praying for deliverance there. So I conclude that verse 4 should be best understood as a recitation of how God has historically worked in David's life. David's saying, look, in the past I've cried out to you with my voice, and you have always answered me from your holy mountain. And therefore I'm confident that you will again. David cried out, or he, or he called out to the Lord with his voice in prayer, and God will answer, not necessarily with his voice verbally, but in his provision for David, as he has so often done in the past. Therefore, in verses 3 and 4, David is appealing to his previous experience of God's faithfulness, God's goodness. And this is the grounds for his current confidence. And so my argument here in verses 3 and 4 is that circumstantially nothing has changed for David. He's still in the same situation. He's still running for his life. But in David's heart, here we see that everything has changed. Here we see the beginnings of the trust coming forward in David's heart. All of the earth's noises have essentially been silenced in David's own ear. The loud, fearful clamoring that was in his head has now left him. So what does David do? Amazingly, he sleeps. Look at verses 5 and 6. Again, I love these verses. I, I lay down and I slept. I awoke I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who've set themselves around about me. In the Hebrew, verse 5 actually begins with the word I. And it's added for emphasis as if we could translate this as David saying, As for me, I lay down and I slept. And I awoke for the Lord sustains me. In this moment of intense fear, David rests his head and he sleeps. In light of all who God is and who God has consistently been for David and all the promises given to David, David records what he did. Despite being on the run, despite his former friends seeking to kill him, despite constant threats of danger all around him, despite millions of things to be fearful of, he says, as for me, I lay down and I slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. Here, David shows us a supreme rest in God's sovereign power over all things. As if David doesn't have a care in the world, David surrenders to his humanly need for rest. No tossing and turning in David's sleep, it seems. No fretful worrying beneath his covers. No, no carefully listening for a twig break in the distant forest. David was convinced that the only reason he would make it unto morning is if and only if God sustained him throughout the night. This is a complete childlike rest upon the sovereignty of God and the power of God to be in control of all things. So I love this. When we rightly understand who God is, how powerful he is, and his control over all things, his uh, just unquestionable sovereignty over all of human events, and we couple that with God's fatherly love for his children, when he causes everything to work together for our good, then we can be at constant perfect peace. 
We can be free from anxiety, free from every worldly fear. Psalm 139, verse 16 states, In your book were written all of my days. All of my days were ordained for me from the beginning. Understand that. God knows the day you will die. And he's always known the day that you will die. And there's nothing that can change that. God is sovereign. He's over all of that. Look what he says then. Look at his renewed confidence in verse 6. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who set themselves against me round about. Here, here with great confidence and great faith in his gods, dear David's fears have been taken away. He says, even if myriads upon myriads of enemy soldiers were stationed and set themselves against me on all sides, I will not be afraid. I will not fear that. I mean, amazing words. To use the, to use the Apostle Paul's words here, he's, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the same faith. And again, I'll just say, on the ground here, in regards to David's external circumstances, nothing has changed. There's been no miraculous deliverance for David. The trial still continues. And yet here is David sleeping like a babe with unyielding faith in his God. His faith has been fully activated now, we might say. This is David just doggedly choosing to place his faith in in what is true and his faith just drowning out fear in his life. So what we've seen here in the psalm, we see the psalmist's heart just outpoured in lament. And now we've seen his faith flexed, his faith muscle flexed. And finally, we see the psalmist's hope secure in verses 7 and 8. The psalmist's hope secure. Look at those two final verses. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon all your people. And so here and now David calls out in prayer. He requests that Yahweh take action. He says, arise, O Yahweh, arise. These are the very words that Moses would often use in the book of Numbers to when the camp set out. Arise, O Yahweh, the angel of the Lord leading the people of Israel in the wilderness. He says, arise, O Lord, raise up, O God, and save me. And save me. Here's the prayer to be saved, for God to save him. Again, the Hebrew is difficult to translate in verse 7, especially the second two lines of verse 7. The grammar here suggests that David is continuing in his prayer. The, the NIV really renders this well. It says, Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. I think that's good. These are David's requests for what God should do in prayer. Now, that's the best way to understand this language. If you take it in the past tense, like my Bible does, then it's best to see David as recalling how God has characteristically worked in the past. Save me now because you have shattered the teeth of my enemies in the past. But again, I think it's best to see this as a request of God. Strike all my enemies on the job. Break out their teeth. That's how God is calling out for God to powerfully intervene for him. Put, put an end to the wicked here. Re- remove the danger from me. A wild animal that has no teeth is of little threat. 
seems to be the idea. So, so David says, God, please defang my enemies. Nullify their power against me. And then David confesses, salvation belongs to the Lord. I'm only going to depend on you, Yahweh. I mean, the salvation will come from no one else. Blessing, your blessing be upon your people. So for deliverance and salvation to come, it will come from Yahweh alone. And David knows this. And he ends with a prayer of blessing. Your blessing be upon your people. And it's interesting. He says, your people. This entire psalm has been about David and in David's own heart. But now he's thinking about God's people. Your people. As if David penned this final long line of this ancient song, this song of faith, as if he's got an eye on all of God's people and how they'll be affected by this. Perhaps suggesting that David was fully aware of the implications of this psalm, fully aware of how this ancient song would impact others, generations and generations of the godly. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have an example of the man of God converting fear to really hope in God through faith. First, David lamented. He poured out his heart to the Lord. And then he, he revived his faith and came to rest. And finally, he ended with a hope-filled prayer of deliverance. And so Psalm 3 becomes a pattern for us. Uh, this is how we can faithfully handle fear in our own hearts. When our hearts are weighed down with the fears of this life, we must talk to God about our fears. God desires that we pour out our hearts before him, that we bring our faith to life, recalling who God is, recalling all that God has promised to us in his word, recalling God's good fatherly leading of all of the events on this planet. And then we offer up hope-filled prayers. Really, in the New Testament, we could compare this to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's like David's living out Philippians 4 here before us in Psalm 3. And so in this way, we can learn to fear God alone. God's power is infinite, and his plan is perfect, and God's will cannot be thwarted in this life. And therefore, we can lie down and sleep. And if we awake, it's because he has sustained us. When we awake every morning, we say, God kept me through the night. And that's why I wake. That's the only reason we wake up each morning. It's because God sovereignly willed for you to awake. He's so sovereign. He's so in control of all things that our life utterly depends upon him at every moment. And in many ways, as I've already said, David was a unique figure in Scripture. God had time and time, to, time, and time again saved him and provided for him. We think of David, for example, overcoming the giant Goliath. Or we think of David's protection from Saul, the king of Israel who desired to kill him. Experientially, God had proven his faithfulness to David over and over again. And furthermore, as we read earlier, God, has given, God gave some unique promises to David. Promises of an eternal kingdom. Promises of laying down his life at a fatherly age, at an old age. 
going to be with the Lord. And particular promises that David was given that we ourselves don't possess. I mean, those promises were given to David. They weren't given to us. And though David's promises were unique, I would say now we have even better promises than David. We now look backwards upon the cross of Christ, the Messiah's coming, the David's greatest descendant who has come and will come again, and how many precious new covenant promises do we have in the New Testament? I mean, just to name a few, think of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Or Romans 8.38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, everything, nothing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from his love. Or Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord. He will be faithful to complete it. What a promise. Or Matthew 5.11 and 12 from Jesus himself, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven will be great. What a promise. Or... Again from Jesus, John 10, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You cannot be snatched out of the Lord's hand. You are eternally kept. If you've truly placed your faith in Christ, you will be kept there forever. Nothing can take you out of the Father's hand. Not even yourself you can't even remove yourself from the Lord's good care over your life. He, he is sovereignly protecting us and nothing can separate us from his love. Death, life, any created thing, nothing can separate us. That is an amazing promise. And these promises are an infinite treasure for us. We know, each one of us, know in our hearts that either Christ will return and we'll be caught up and we'll meet him in the air. Or soon enough, our fragile bodies will come to their end. And they will fail us and we'll depart from this life to be forever with Christ. And therefore, every night when our head hits the pillow, despite whatever circumstances we may be in, despite whatever fears we have in our hearts, we can say with David, I'm going to lay down and I'm going to sleep and I will awake if and only if the Lord sustains me. Our hope is in him, and we rest upon the good character of our Heavenly Father, and we rest upon every promise in the Word of God. That's what we're to do as faithful Christians, following this path given to us by David. So let's pray that the Lord would help us to do this very thing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for David's life and his example. We thank you for his raw emotions that we see in the book of Psalms. Uh, we thank you that we don't need to be dominated by fear in this life. God, there's so many things to be fearful of. Uh, but help us to rest in your sovereign control of all things and to just hold fast to the word of God and the precious promises that we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you for giving your son for us. 
and offering him up as a sacrifice. If you've so given us your son, how will you not also give us every spiritual blessing that we could imagine? We, we are so richly treasured in Christ. We're so blessed, and we thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your loving kindness that you've poured out upon our lives in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful that you have given us the word of God to help us navigate this life. So help us to be a people who not only hear the word of God, but who live by it. Help us to obey this passage and this example. Make us more like Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this